Welcome to the Horseman's Academy podcast presented by Lundahl Performance. We believe in making advanced horsemanship accessible, and our mission is to present a raw, authentic look at horse training. We're problem solving, we're answering difficult questions, and we're breaking down common sense exercises for riders of all levels. On this podcast, we document the lessons we've learned in our own horsemanship journey while offering insights that might help you achieve your horsemanship goals. Thank you for listening. All right. I think we should be live. So, hoping if, so. Uh, <laughs> if those of you guys listening um, could just respond in the chat or in the comments below, you should be hearing us. But if for some reason the audio isn't coming through or it's chopping in and out or clicking, whatever, just let us know. But thank you guys for tuning in and thank you to everybody that submitted questions. And hopefully we can get through a bulk of them today. We might not get to everybody. But if we bring up your question and answer it in the podcast, we're going to send you an email separately asking you if you want a hat, whether it's the camo or the red or any of the t-shirts that were in that photo that we posted before. Mm -hmm. So thank you guys once again. Obviously, I'm Jake Lundell. I'm joined here with Amy Kegel. And uh, we're going to go through some of these questions here and we got a lot to get to. Now, Lindsay asked us, and I think this is a good one to start off with because we had just posted a new addition to the podcast feed. And in that episode, we drew a big contrast between a really sensitive kind of a feely cow horse that we have in training versus another horse that was kind of on the dull, lazy side, uh, almost kind of on the resentful side, to be honest, like just in, in his disposition and just level of resistance. And on top of that, he was pretty unathletic. And so we got some, we got some good questions out of that. Um, let's see here. I'm just going to pull this up here. So Lindsay asked us, you know, you talked in your last episode about an unwilling, bad-minded horse that has more than just sticky feet on Monday. And you also talked about the lazy, willing horse with sticky feet in older episodes. So what are some of the other exercises that can be used to move past the sticky feet issue other than the one talked about in the older episode of loping around on a loose rein for a majority of the ride? And that's a very good question. It kind of breaks down for us along two different lines. You've got the bad-minded horse that's kind of resentful and looking for a fight. And we talked about that in the, in the most recent podcast. But then you can also have a good-natured, good-minded horse that is just kind of on the lazy and unambitious side of the scale. And so a horse that's on the cold-blooded and lazy side is always going to lean that direction, just like a hot, nervous horse is always going to be on that side of the scale. And so regardless of what you do to light a fire under that lazy horse's tail, he's always going to have that unambitious streak in him. And that's not necessarily a negative either. That's no. just being realistic about the horse's personality, about what he is, and just keeping that in mind through this training process. You know, we can't take something that is just by nature one way and fundamentally change it. It's just not going to happen. Exactly. And, you know, motivating a horse like that, that's good-natured but lazy, 
to just pull his finger out and step up the effort, it's kind of a two-part equation for us. And it really does start in that foundational stage with the cruising exercises and loping or even galloping on a loose rein. Prevention is better than cure when it comes to chronic laziness and just a sticky gas pedal, you know what I mean? And so if you can get that colt's feet unstuck with a lot of galloping on a loose rein in the early stages, you get that cruising done and you move on, right? We've met a lot of people that they have to keep coming back to their gas pedal and gearbox exercises. And if you keep having to come back to it, you're not doing it right. That's a one and done type of a deal. And really, when it comes to getting a horse moved out, the effectiveness of your cues is measured in how many times you have to repeat them. That's just being honest. So if you find yourself with constant gas pedal problems, you're not being effective enough. And it might be valuable to go back to that initial stage of cruising and, and not just podunking around at the lope, like literally galloping that thing around the arena. That's what I was just going to say. You know, this this is where a contrast is drawn between a more forward horse, a more sensitive or feely horse. Them, we kind of always want to be getting them to think slower, relax. So if those guys want to pony lope around, we're definitely going to let them. But this naturally lazy horse, especially clear on the lazy, lazy side of the spectrum, we are going to do some galloping on them. And there's a difference between that gallop and the lope. I can think back to several horses or colts mainly that I had early on um, that were doing just that. They were kind of like pogo stick loping where they're just kind of moving up and down more than actually stretching out and going somewhere. And that uh, helped me realize the importance of getting them actually loped out, stretched out, you know, covering some ground and traveling somewhere more than just that pony lope in this really dull horse. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you've got to be a bit of a confident rider, though, to really gallop a horse out on a loose rein. Like, it takes a little bit of trust in your own riding ability and balance. And if you're out there teleporting around, like, if, if you don't feel confident to really gallop that horse out, find somebody that's young enough and dumb enough that calls himself a horse trainer <laughs> to get on. You know, you pay somebody else money to risk their neck. That's called a horse trainer. Um, but the second component to this answer is, and this is, this is really what gets people, right, is you've got to go to the do it now stage with your legs. And this is forever, right? Because we talked about the fact that it's going to be kind of a maintenance issue, just like getting a hot-blooded horse to calm down. This is the opposite problem. And so where most people fall behind and really get in a, for lack, you know, mind my pun, sticky situation with a with a dull, lazy horse that doesn't want to move out is they're way too ineffective with their legs. It is crucial with a lazier horse that you don't want to be in a habit of nagging or being ineffective. And this this translates across every exercise. Remember, you know, a lot of people are very aware or or they understand what it means to go to the do it now stage on the ground. Like an exercise like backing, for example, you know, you go from all the methodical steps of leaning forward, tap the air, you know, use body language and you kind of scale up the pressure four beats at a time and you're asking, 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 and you build up to a tell. Well, eventually when you get to the do it now stage, it's ask nicely still, but then tell with authority, right? And you have to get that way with your legs and with your hands under saddle as well. And again, the effectiveness of a cue is measured in how many times you have to repeat it. If you're nagging, 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 doing the same thing over and over again with the same level of pressure, you're not making any progress, 
clearly you have not really gone to the do it now stage with your leg or hands. Now, can that in, in context in, involve kicking on a horse or whacking on him with a spanker or the end of the rein to either get him to move out or get him to move that sticky body part over, whether it's yield their, yield their hindquarters or get their shoulder moved over or move that rib cage over. You've got to step up that level of effectiveness and you don't want to be a nagging mother. And that's probably the biggest problem we see where owners are getting buffaloed by these dull, lazy, pushy horses that love to lean on pressure. You've got to be more effective with that pressure and you have to be with a lazy horse. It is beyond important to be black and white in your cues. Get them to take your legs and hands seriously, right? You don't want to be ineffective. You want to get that horse, not only just wake them up mentally, but you want to instill in that horse a little bit of concern of what you're going to do if he is lazy, if he's being pushy, if he's just going to make the decision to outright ignore you, you need to do something that's at an, a level of effectiveness and a level of reprimand and pressure that you give him an incentive to care. That's right. probably... And, and that's exactly what I was going to say. Rather than concern, care. Like you're making them a little bit concerned. That way they care about the cues that you're actually giving them because what they want to naturally do is probably just ignore you and your cues. Yeah, exactly. Now, that's kind of a good-minded horse that's lazy and unambitious to where... You know, they're, they're not going to offer anything more than you ask. Right. So you need to step up that level of effectiveness there. But a bad-minded horse that is resentful and looking for a fight, and we kind of touched on some of these points in the last podcast we did, where, but we didn't really flesh this out. And I, I was grateful for Lindsay's question because it gives us a chance to say this, is with a horse like this that's on the side of being bad-minded, it's really... In a training scenario, it's a judgment call on how far you can push the envelope in your training without crashing the horse's mental computer. So there's no easy answer here. It really comes down to your feel and timing as a horseman and because you're going to go through struggle and resistance, but you have to be able to, to know the, the difference between kind of a temporary bit of, uh, of struggle and resistance versus something that is way out of the horse's league and that is you asking too much, right? right. We've got to get over hurdles, but we don't want everything to go up in flames. And so as a horseman, we kind of have to have some experience and be able to have some foresight going in with this horse and be able to tell before things erupt, you know, what is a hurdle that just needs pushed through and what is going to explode in our yeah. face. That's such a horse trainer answer though. Is, well, <laughs> you just have to know, right? Just But just... that's that's what makes these bad-minded horses more difficult and more challenging, especially to your general, you know, backyard trainer or someone with less experience exactly and that's why people end up in trouble with these horses right. is it's so difficult to know where the line actually is right and and really that's your job as a horseman is find where that line is in terms of the horse's capability both in mental trainability but also their athletic ability to even physically do the exercises right. you know and some... that's that's where you were talking about you know experimenting and pushing the envelope as far as you can you kind of have to push those boundaries to figure out where they are exactly and a lot of times it involves us lowering our own initial expectations of what a particular horse is actually capable of you know but if you do your job correctly you're able to raise the bar just enough 
and, and get that horse trained to a level where you can find kind of a neutral point to make the horse reasonably content. A typical scenario is like if we take a horse in for eight weeks of training and we're consistently pushing the envelope on getting that horse's flexing better, trying to get as close as possible with the softening and get, you know, moving off of our leg and all the exercises, we're trying to get to an A plus, right? But ultimately we're gonna be happy with a B grade sometimes even lower, like a B minus or a C plus with some horses, because it's really all they're ultimately capable of with a positive attitude, right? Right, mentally and physically. You right. know, we're taking both of those components in, into this equation. Right, and so a lot of times it happens that we've pushed a horse super hard, but then when we hand that horse back to the owner at the end of eight weeks of training, that owner is not going to push the horse as hard as we did when we had it in active training. And so both of them, you know, the, the owner has to make some efforts to step up a little bit in their capabilities, you know, learn the exercises that the horse knows, how to, you know, compensate for things or correct areas where there's still not 100% consistency on the horse's part, you know, but the horse can kind of fall back a little bit as well because there's not quite as much demand. And both of those, both the horse and the owner will often settle into like a happy medium where, you know, the owner's kind of getting the horse to ride with a passing grade. They never really ask for anything extreme outside of the horse's capability. And the horse is more than happy to accept that because he's been in training and he knows what real pushing the envelope feels like. And a lot of times the horses are almost grateful to go back to somebody that's going to be a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more chill, and just kind of settle into, like I said, the happy medium there. Yes, yeah. So it's a combination there of, of pushing them almost, almost to the brink of how far they can go and then letting, letting them fall back to a comfortable medial area where the owners can get along with them real well. Right, but the key to making that successful is just communication. Mm -hmm. You know, the owner needs to be on board with what the horse's capabilities are and um, you know just we get a lot of that's one of the parts of our screening process is we're, we're extremely diligent about just you know going through a lot of points asking probing questions about what their experience has been with the horse in the past and then during the training we're brutally honest with like if we don't feel like this horse is up to their standards or, or you know it's not jiving with the expectations that they've given us for the for the training we're going to call that out and at that point we'll we'll make some decisions we actually got some additional questions that go right to that point so we'll we'll hold off on that for now and we'll get into another question here from katie um, which was kind of along the same lines she listened to our most recent podcast again and she said that you know in your last podcast you described a very difficult horse i know many professionals um, just choose not to train these types of horses and so at what point do you decide that it's simply not worth your time or the owner's time to continue training that kind of horse? Uh, we know these horses are very limited with what they're able to do, and the person that can ride the horse is often limited as well. And I would say the number one factor in all this is safety for everybody involved. Like if we we're obviously have a thorough screening process, but if a horse still gets through that, but when he arrives, just based on how he handles his initial week or so of training, if we honestly believe that this thing is going to get somebody hurt and is just absolutely not worth it, we'll pull that plug and fire the horse immediately. We mm -hmm. make no qualms about that. Right. And, and it's rare, but it has happened before. Very rare, though. 
Yeah. yeah that That's not the bulk of these cases. No. In most cases, it's not so clear. It's not so cut and dry. And there's a bit more nuance involved, you know, where this horse is really struggling and has some bad habits and chronic issues. But under the right circumstances and with the right owner, that horse could be successful. And, and that's where a lot of the screening comes in. You, you have to really get to know the owner on, on many different ways because you have to know what that owner wants, what that owner needs, what that owner's ability is as a rider, uh, in their confidence, in their ability, and to see if this horse is going to be a good fit or not. But that's, that's one main area that really plays keyly into this is what the owner needs and wants and is able to do. Yeah, definitely. And over-communication is key in that to, to determine if a long-term fit is even possible. Mm -hmm. What's often difficult for people is, you know, they'll, they'll bring us a horse that has never really been exposed to pressure. It's just kind of been sitting around in the backyard. And oftentimes it's a bit of a wild card as to how those horses are mentally going to handle pressure. You know, something that you think is a little backyard sweetheart becomes a little demon pony when you actually start putting demands on him. Once they kind of wake up, so to speak. Yeah, you tell that you tell that horse that's kind of been living on welfare to get off the couch and get a job, then we see the true attitude and the true character of that horse come out, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then it becomes about over-communication on what the issues are. And a lot of times we'll give people kind of a two-week period because a week is not enough to really know. We do a, a ton of intense groundwork, especially in the first week. We're exposing that horse to pressure, getting their feet moving, getting control of their feet on the ground and starting to go under saddle. And by the end of week two, we have a very, very good idea of what this horse's capabilities are. Because so. we've kind of rattled their cage enough to see where the chips are going to fall. Like, how are they going to handle pressure? How are they going to handle their new career, so to speak, when it is an everyday intense sort of thing? Yeah. And that first update that we give people is often pretty brutally honest. <laughs> like, you know, we're, we're going to totally tell them with no holds barred where that horse is struggling and give them our honest opinion based on everything that they've told us previously about what their needs are, what their goals are. And we're going to give them an honest assessment of whether or not this thing is a good fit and, you know, what we can realistically expect. And as long as, again, it should be stressed that we're not wanting to get anybody into a safety issue here. However, on the flip side of that, a lot of people are very emotionally attached to horses. And when we go through this process with them, they kind of make a decision that, okay, well, he's not the optimum horse for me, really. But you know what? I want to get him trained to the highest possible uh, uh, level. I, I still want to make a useful saddle horse out of him. Uh, you know, we might not have a, a great connection, but you give me the tools to to maintain some of the issues that he has, or you know, we do our best to get this horse riding and and operating safely and respectfully. Then I'm okay with that. You know, mm -hmm. but that's the key, though. Is it call, it all comes back down to communication. We cannot stress that enough. Um, but if it's a situation where clearly the horse is not going to jive with what this owner wants, or we think that this owner is just a little bit, uh, you know, hesitate to say it, but a little bit delusional of what this horse's capabilities are, and we see a bad situation coming on the horizon, we will pull the plug. And you and I both have had horses occasionally where we strongly recommended, you know, just based on safety issue or, or whatever, that they needed to cut ties and just fired that horse from the program yeah. and sent him home. 
And, yep. and a lot of people will take that in stride because they trust our opinion, we're the professionals. But uh, I can think of one case in particular where I had a training horse and this horse was clearly very bad-minded, very resistant. This lady was not a confident rider. She was pretty beginner-ish. And this was just going to be a train wreck and a massive hospital bill, you know, just a ticking time bomb. It would have been horrible. And even after over-communicating all of these horses' horrible, horrible tendencies and habits and its bad, bad, bad attitude, she still wanted to just brazenly forge ahead with it, even though this had disaster signs all over it. Hmm. In that particular case, you know, I made the call that I wasn't going to continue with this horse and pulled the plug because the owner was unrealistic about what the horse is and about her ability. Yeah, you've got to be sensitive to those things. I, you know, this is kind of a, uh, I guess, something on the flip side here where I had a horse in training that, you know, he came in with a severe bucking issue. I didn't realize how severe until he actually got in for training, right? They had told me some of the details of the disaster that this horse was uh, when, when he had been started under saddle before, like multiple times he bucked the saddle off. I think he'd actually escaped the round pin at one point and some other things and it, and it was just awful, right? Like the worst possible setting of the tone that you could have to, to start a horse's career under saddle. You think leaping out of the round pen? Yeah, might might not be the best. Uh, might, might have something to do with his out, problems. Outcome you know? there. Um, so, you know, we got the horse in for training and I, when you smell a problem like that, you know, you get enough experience and it just clicks in your mind to, to call that out and, and basically go through and say, look, with a problem that severe, nine times out of 10, it's going to be a chronic issue that's in there for the long term, especially, you know, something like bucking with the saddle, it, with, with a, the tone being set that badly in an impressionable young horse's mind, that's an intense negative experience that's been seared into his brain like almost like a, a traumatic experience of, of some kind. And it's going to be really hard to, to get over that, you know, and that's, so we went through all that entire process, et cetera, et cetera. The owners were still, it was kind of, again, kind of that situation where they're emotionally attached to the horse. They understood the risks and they understood that you know, this thing might have a chronic issue going forward for a long time, but they were still committed to trying to make him as best as we could. Right. So we went through the training and that's really how it how it ended up was that I got this horse quiet and riding great for me and for someone that's experienced. Right. But he was never going to be a kid's pony. And as, as long as they knew that and accepted that, and as long as they understood that you know, this bucking issue does not go away overnight and it does not go away in eight weeks when it's this severe, it's often kind of a chronic thing that's like a seed in their mind waiting to sprout at some opportune time. Like, you know, you give this horse a lot of time off and then come back and saddle him randomly one day, that'll probably expose it. Or, or really just any silly little thing. You know, horses are reactive animals. Um, but again, that was a situation where we got it under control, but I didn't, I could not honestly say that this thing was completely over it, 100%. And you can go trust him with your little kids. Because there would probably be a time somewhere, someday, that you can't predict where that, that horse is going to do something goofy. Exactly. And so, you know, really, again, it just comes down to communication. There's horses that will absolutely fire from the program. There's horses that will make a judgment call 
on what the owner's capabilities are and after fully explaining and understanding those problems, then we'll make a rational decision, right? But above all, we do not want to have any safety issues and that's always our first consideration there. Um, moving on here so we can get through some more of these questions. We got a good little training question from Lindsay uh, where she asked, what is a fundamental skill or exercise that every single horse you ride needs to have, or if it's an exercise that you do every ride. And there's a lot of potential answers here. And I know a lot of trainers would say hindquarter control or lateral flexion, and those are certainly true. But I want to go with the thing that's often overlooked in my experience, which is forequarter control. Control of that horse's front end, control of their shoulders. Something about, and this applies to both on the ground and under saddle. I had a, a mentor tell me this years ago, and it's so true, is that something about getting control of a horse's shoulders, because think about it, horses that are pushy, especially disrespectful, what do they use as their primary way to, to muscle you out of the way or muscle other horses around, control your movement or control other horses in the herd? It's primarily their front end you know, their head, neck, and shoulders, and something about controlling a horse's front end just gets them more mentally submissive. It's just kind of a, a little byproduct, you might say. Definitely. But it, in, in saying all of those benefits of it, it's oftentimes overlooked in part because it's, it's harder to teach. I'm sure you would agree with this, Jake, you know, in your teaching experience, it's harder to teach people. And oftentimes it's harder to teach the horse as well, as in they don't really want us to know this very well. They like to keep that pushiness with them. And so, you know, it's, it's a little more difficult to teach both the people aspect and the horse aspect. However, the benefits definitely outweigh that little bit of struggle in the beginning. Yeah, so even starting on the ground with exercises like yielding the four quarters on the mm -hmm. ground, you know, there's very few groundwork exercises that translate direct benefits to the saddle. A lot of groundwork is just a way to get to the riding and have some control of this horse's feet and establish a little bit of respect. But in a few instances, there's groundwork exercises like backing, for example, that do have a direct positive benefit on how that horse backs up, say, under saddle. Same thing applies to four quarters. If you do a lot of yield to four quarters on the ground and get that horse very respectful, responsive about moving those shoulders away and yielding to pressure, that translates significantly to the saddle. And so obviously that process starts as soon as we begin our training with any horse. And it's something that we'll review on a consistent basis. And you know, when it comes to four quarters, as well as backing, we just kind of establish a starting point with that and just chip away day by day, another step, a little bit more energy in the feet, a little bit more correct. And you know, we don't overload them with giant doses and, and uh, giant sessions where we're constantly nitpicking at it because you can get yourself in trouble that way. But day in and day out, just chipping away, getting that better and better and better, more refined. When we take things under saddle, you know, obviously the yield the four quarters exercise that I mentioned in the, in the last podcast, that applies to super green colts. We've got uh, different steering exercises that we do. Even before we have a lot of shoulder control, we're doing things like the post to post or post and circle exercises where we're getting a little bit of impulsion, but we're also learning how to control those shoulders. Mm -hmm. And then adding those three quarter turns. Yeah, yield the hind quarters, bring the front end through. Again, just upping the amount of shoulder control. We progress that as well as our lateral flexion, obviously, to turning a horse around on the foot. And by that point, 
you've got enough shoulder control that you can really, uh, you know, it just applies to so many exercises. Really, and before I learned this, I was always confused, but it, it's so true is that you'll never get a really good stop on a horse without a, without a turnaround, at least in, in the way that we do it in our program. Shoulder control is such a key aspect of everything, even the stop. You know, you're not going to get a good stop from a backup. You get a good stop from connecting the word woe to the horse engaging his hindquarters, but staying loose and pliable up front. And that, that comes through just repetition of like our stop on woe exercise where we say that word and if they don't stop, immediately pull them around, turn them around on our foot. And use it, you can use that as both the turnaround, I'm, I'm saying. You can use the turnaround as both a correction, a redirection of the feet, uh, just extra reinforcement in, in so many exercises, whether it's your stopping, whether it's uh, shoulder in, shoulder out that translates then into counterbending, um, you know, side passing, and then eventually the turnaround itself, you know, driving a horse forward and around outside of the turn as well as initiating an actual turnaround or a spin. Um, just the more shoulder control you can have on a horse, and I've become a big believer in this over the past couple of years, is that this is something that you have to establish early and, and put almost equal emphasis on as the, the hindquarters. You know, I'd say maybe the hindquarters has a slight advantage. The hindquarters is like the engine of the car, right? And we right. In, in the teaching order, that kind of seems to come first, but then we can't completely forget about the front end. We can't ride around on half a horse that has an engine, but not really a steering wheel to, to steer it anywhere. And that's kind of a, a good mental picture and a good analogy there is if you don't have much or any forequarter control, it's like driving a car with no power steering. You know, think about everything we do with our horse, whether that's loping circles or running a pattern or whatever we do there's steering involved like we can't get away from it it's pretty basic and so this four quarters takes that steering which is so basic yet so necessary to a much higher level where we're not having to fight so much literally just to get where we're going it can add a level of refinement there and then like jake was touching on it really does turn a horse around and and um turn a horse around, haha. <laughs> anyway, but it, it helps them a lot mentally, gets them a lot more submissive, a lot more respectful. There's almost like a, a switch that gets flipped when you have better and more control of that horse's front end. Speaking of counterbendering and things of that nature, we got a question from Patty on preparing for flying lead changes. And I, I want to point out before we dive into it, we'll do a surface level kind of overview here. But um, Luke and I sat down and recorded like a couple hours worth of audio content. If you go to soundcloud.com and just type in Lundahl Horses, uh, well, actually, that's the URL, soundcloud.com slash Lundahl Horses, or just go to SoundCloud and type Lundahl in the search bar. You'll find a multi-part playlist where we went into a lot of excruciating detail about how we build up to lead changes. and and kind of our conception of a lead change program versus what we call the the thump and jump method of you know and that it seems to be one of these things that that people really grasp onto and try to rush or or feel like they're they're less if they don't have this on their horse and the way I compare teaching flying lead change it's like growing a garden like it's something that 
Yes, you can plant the seeds, you can have the correct fertilizer, the water, etc. But it's going to come when it's going to come. Like it's not a process that you can really rush without just tempting disaster, right? And so, so there's a, there's a development process, <clears throat> and and we run into and we see this a lot. Um, you know, many many problems when this is rushed, or um, you know, the negatives of the thump and bump method, so yeah, to speak. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of preparedness, now keep in mind, this is like a four to six month period of development that we're talking about here of constant, you know, six days a week riding uh, minimum, right? Before we feel like we've got a horse prepared well enough. And during that time, obviously any bending, suppling, counter bending and shaping that horse, starting at the walk and trot, obviously. But when we get to the canter, that's where it becomes a little bit more complicated because we have two exercises, or I guess two types of exercises, where we've got counter cantering, and so essentially cantering a shape or an angle or a circle on what would conventionally be called the incorrect lead, on the opposite lead, as well as counter bending at the canter. And these two things are interchangeable. So for example, and, and just think about there's, there's lead, there's direction, and there's shape in terms of the horse's body. So you might be cantering a left circle on the left lead with the horse shaped left. So everything is, is left. Or you might be cantering a right circle on the left lead shaped left. And all those combinations, you know, right circle, left lead shaped to the right, et cetera, et cetera. And we go through this on our, on our playlist, but the more time you can spend methodically working through those steps and building the horse's confidence with being taken in and out of different shapes, cantering and counter cantering different circles, each lead, like just getting them used to being handled, right? Because the, the number one problem that we see when we help people with lead changes is the horses anticipating, getting bracy. Uh, they're, they're kind of in the habit of feeling like the lead change or the buildup to it is like a stressful kind of a tense moment. You see a lot of horses that will throw their head up quickly or, or jump into it. And we're very diligent about not creating that habit because it's so dang hard to fix once it's in there. So we would rather take our time and get the horse super relaxed, right? With everything but the actual changing of the lead first. You know, we want to be able to shape and take a hold of them in every combination of those three areas that you mentioned while they're being smooth and relaxed. That's what we mean when we say getting used to it. You know, smooth, relaxed, and soft, not bracy through all those different transi transitions and combinations of those, those elements. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that builds up into our cigar exercises where you're, mm -hmm. you're traveling across the arena on a particular lead and you're effectively changing shape as you go through the center, kind of simulating a lead change. Again, just simulating that horse being handled, changing shapes in there without actually changing leads and just de-escalating de the potential tension and the potential for a fight or resistance in there and making this a very non-intimidating thing. I think that's part of the problem sometimes is people get very worked up about the lead change issue. They make a big deal out of it and they often rush the process and create tension and just reactive habits in the horse or anticipation, etc., braciness, and it's very hard to fix once the horse goes down that path. So again, I'd point you guys to the SoundCloud playlist we did on it, but that's effectively kind of the trajectory is 
tons of bending, counter bending, and suppling at the walk and the trot. You build up to the canter, and you're counter cantering and counter bending at the canter, both leads, both directions, right? You take that into cigar exercises where you're simulating taking the horse in and out of different shapes and angles going across the arena and just being handled without actually changing leads. And then at some point, you know, we're very low key about how we initially ask for that first change of the horse's life. And typically it involves, you know, taking them across the arena. Again, we've set things up in the, in the cigar exercise. And, you know, let's say we're coming across, we're in the left lead, we want to change to the right. We're just going to lay that leg and just kind of wait, 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 maybe round the corner. So we're heading, heading right. So we're counter cantering if that horse is on the left lead. We're just, just there with our legs, just, just there or kind of bumping lightly, just kind of waiting, waiting, and just kind of making that horse feel uncomfortable, but we're not kicking on him. We're not thumping him. And obviously as a rider, there's a little bit of feel and timing involved. Like if you can time your leg pressure correctly with the horse's stride, it just takes some experimentation. Like I'm not going to sit here and give a scientific white paper on it, but it's something you can feel as a rider is when a horse is set up well for it, you can just lay that leg and just keep asking, asking, asking. And sometimes they'll flounder around the arena and the incorrect lead for a while. But again, you're just kind of making it uncomfortable without wailing on them again deep. we're trying to make it a non-issue here we're, we're giving it a good healthy environment for it to happen and then we're just kind of there 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 until it does happen that way this doesn't become a huge fight the first couple times almost almost like a non-issue you know we're definitely not in the do it now stage you know we, we did preparation 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 now we're ready to actually do it these first couple times we're not ramming and jamming them into it exactly if you guys are really interested in, in a super good resource on lead changes, um, if you have a chance to get access to uh, any Andrea Flapani videos on lead mm -hmm. changes, a lot of the ideas along like de-escalating a potential fight and making this a more relaxed and methodical process, a lot of those ideas are, are very strongly borrowed from Andrea. He's a big influence there. Um, you know, we are especially overly concerned in the beginning with doing a lot of suppling and body control as well, but we love the, the method that Andrea has of just like easing a horse into it a little bit more, not making it an intimidating process to get them into the, into the lead that first time. You want to have that horse be relaxed and not make a big giant deal out of it. Mm -hmm. So let's move on here. And this is a little bit more of like a, kind of a, a meta overview or like a business type question. Um, Jennifer has asked us some very good questions uh, as on Instagram and on Facebook. And she says here, how do you deal with clients that are regressing horses that you've worked on? Uh, whether that's ignoring certain behaviors that you know you'll have to deal with later. How, how do you nicely tell people that ignoring pushy behavior isn't being nice or even fair to the horse? Because if you as the trainer take the horse back over, you're going to be dropping the hammer when the horse exhibits disrespectful behavior again. And... I would say because I, she, she was wondering if this would have uh, some mass appeal, and I really do think it does because I, there's not only a lot of professionals that, that kind of collaborate with us and, and have these conversations, but there's a lot of people who are kind of in a semi-professional role where 
they're boarding at a particular barn or they just know people locally who have seen their passion with horses and these people have a bit of a skill set and they go from being a total non-professional and doing their thing to where now their passion and skill has attracted people who are willing to put a little money in their hands. And so it becomes like a side hustle type thing. And very quickly, they find themselves dealing with the same kind of problems that strictly professional horse trainers deal with. And so I thought it would be good to go through what we feel are three, really three components to the answer uh, to the question of regression, right? And number one, you've probably heard the old saying is you cannot raise other people's children, right? You have to sometimes as much as we want to step in or say something, uh, you just have to accept that you can never control the outcome entirely. Now, that doesn't mean you don't provide a ton of input and support, but you also can't wrap your ego up entirely in what your customers or the people you work with are doing. You know, you have to kind of stay in your lane and have a, have a little bit of boundaries. If you want to control other people's lives, be a life coach, right? I, I've seen there's kind of been a movement actually to marry like life coaching business model with horsemanship. If you want to go that route, then absolutely run other people's lives. But I've got enough trouble running my own. That's for sure. So, you know, the fact is also people need to be self-motivated in order to change. I would say there's and that's not something that you can generate for them. Exactly. That has to come from them, and it's going to depend on your client, the person you're working with. Exactly. There's probably the first commandment of horsemanship is to change your horse, you must first change yourself. And commandment number two that's very much like that is if you keep doing what you've been doing, you'll keep getting what you've been getting. And unless somebody is really honestly willing and, and willing to come forth in good faith and want to make a positive change, you're not going to be able to help them, right? And... You know, as a trainer, this is kind of how it's broken down for me anyway. You're going to always meet three types of horse owners. Number one is the kind of people who succeed no matter what. These are like the rednecks that we all know that like their paddock is one strand of just the most disgusting looking barbed wire. They really don't take care of their horses. They really don't ride very consistently, but their horses never have a scratch on them doesn't matter what kind of conditions they're living in. They always look healthy. They're not a scratch on them. No wire cuts, no nothing. And as little groundwork or preparation as they do, you never see them get bucked off. Never really <clears throat> do you hear them complaining about their horse or having any kind of problems. They're just always going to succeed no matter what, right? And you typically won't work with people like that anyway because what do they need a trainer for, right? There's the second type of person that will never succeed no matter what. That's in horsemanship and that's just in life in general. And just for whatever reason, they just don't have the intestinal or mental fortitude. They don't have the grit. They don't have the perseverance. They can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, they're just not motivated enough. And they're just, no matter how much you try to extend a hand to them, they're just not going to reciprocate, right? And so again, going back to screening and over communication, like really go out of your way to dig down deep into why somebody wants to work with you in the first place. You know, a lot of times you can root out potential issues right, right then. You know, if it's kind of a thing of, well, you know, you're in my barn and just thought it'd be cool to have you ride my horse for a week. Like that's a very low barrier to entry. Not a lot of investment, not a lot of skin in the game or commitment from that person, right? But the third type of, getting back on track here, the, the third type of person is the, the ones that really do 
earnestly want and need your help to be successful. And you need to get good at identifying and, and, and serving those people, helping those people. You know, too many people are, are just bogged down and just not very motivated, like constantly sitting back and complaining about their horses, but they barely can manage to ride once a week. And we all know that horses require consistency. You know, consistency, greatest ally, inconsistency is your greatest enemy. We all know what the ingredients to success are. But if, if someone is just not willing to step up there, there's, there's very little that you can do other than simply calling attention to the fact that, hey, you know, if, if, you, if you want to correct this issue, you want to accomplish this goal that you articulated to me, you're going to have to dramatically step things up, right? Um, but getting back to the communication thing, this would probably be point number two. So point number one is you can't raise people's children. At the end of the day, you've got to just accept that you're going to stay in your lane and you can't always control the outcome completely, but you can be there to provide a support system and you can over communicate before, during, and after, right? And along with that over-communication, just a little tidbit that I found is that when you're teaching that person, or giving them a lesson, you know, reintroducing them to their horse after a training session, no matter what the case is, I always go out of the out of your way to explain the whys of what you're doing, whether that's yielding the hindquarters or pushing the front end around or the importance of loping or the way they're using their hands or their legs. If they don't understand why and you're just telling them physically do this, do this, do this, when you're not around, they're going to have no motivation and it's not going to have stuck in their mind that that they need to be doing this because they don't understand why. So go out of your way to explain to them why we're doing these things and uh, you know, kind of go out of your way again to find out what motivates that person, you know, what's important to them, whether that's a certain maneuver or a certain mental behavior in that horse and kind of use that to motivate the horse and draw parallels to where, well, right now you're letting this go. And if you let this go, you're not going to get this, which is what you wanted. So if you can kind of draw parallels there and make sure your client understands why you're stressing the importance of these things and what that importance is, that sometimes helps. But again, you can't control them when you're not always there. Exactly. And number two here is prevention is better than cure. You know, you've got to, I kind of touched on this previously. You've got to, you've got to be seeking people out who are really committed and will make a good faith effort to try. But it goes with what you said, Amy, about you, you need to communicate the why of what you're doing. A lot of horse trainers and and you know people that do like lessons and stuff with less educated riders i think get in a bad kind of almost a lazy habit of barking technical directions and, and, not... and just nitpicking 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 or turning into that hollering lesson lady that yes. everybody knows and doesn't like exactly and so you don't want to be an automaton spitting out you know little pre-canned phrases you want to take time and like you said figure out what 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 really matters here in the final equation? What do you want to get out of this relationship here? With What do you want to get out of your time that you're investing with me? Because um, I'm going to take that seriously, right? But you've got to screen the people you work with. Find ones that are honestly a good fit for your program. If you're not turning a lot of people away, in my, in my book, you're not doing it right. Um, so sometimes being a little bit selective there is going to help you 
Whereas if you have a very low barrier to entry for people to work with you, you're often going to get people who, because it's not a significant investment to work with you, they're not going to take it seriously enough, right? It's a little bit too convenient. Exactly. And that's where like the local backyard horse trainers get into trouble is, is with those types of situations. And it can kind of creep and, and, and happen to somebody before they even realize it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and number three point here in terms of preventing regression um, is just, again, over-communication. And that could be you know, before, during, and after the process, explaining the why, but also repetition, repetition, repetition. There's a reason why a lot of times when I'm editing the regular podcast, I'm editing out five minutes of me just explaining the same thing over and over. Like 15 different ways (laughs) and flavors. Yeah, 15 different repackagings. See, I just did it right there. Um, But there's a reason I'm in that habit, right? Is because if if I find something that needs to be overemphasized and stressed, I'm going to continue like repackaging it in new ways. I'm basically throwing everything I can at the wall and trying to get something to stick. Right. And okay. and with that, you know, especially with a horse that we've had in training, like during that lesson day when the owner comes back and we're trying to hammer home on a couple important ideas or exercises, you know, there might be 18 things that really need work, okay? But only about five of them are going to stick. So we need to know which one's our highest priority here, you know, and not sweat the little things. You know, we got to get what's actually important and hammer home on those. Yes. And that plays to what we mentioned before about like trainers becoming too nitpicky. That's where you got to clear the bullcrap aside and you've got to focus what limited time you have with this person needs to be a hardcore intensive focus on the most important issues that are at play. Because there's a, there's a time to nitpick, but have a big picture and, and have your exercises or problems prioritized. That's key is, is prioritizing. Yeah. And a lot of times, especially if it's a, a training horse owner that's had their horse in training with us for eight weeks, when we get to that full day lesson and we certainly make use of it, you know, we're going to insist on ample time and repetition during that entire day to observe how this person is interacting with the horse. We make them take over the stick and string. We make them get in the saddle. And we're going to bug test all these interactions with the horse and repetition, repetition on the most important key exercises until we're satisfied with a passing grade. Now, we can't be so arrogant as to think think that we're going to get this person to like perfectly replicate everything that we're doing, right? That's not reality. Right. For most of these people, this is a hobby. At best, an intense or very time-consuming hobby for them. But it is just a hobby. So if this is your profession, you know, you can't expect your clients to be at your level of proficiency. That's just unrealistic. Exactly. But you can also stress the importance of like, you know, you've you've got them doing a lot of repetition on, say, a, a backing exercise on the ground. And you make a point to call out when it's good and bad. You make a point to call out, okay, you know, uh, Jennifer, for example, that's the bar. No less energy in his feet than that. You know, no no more drape in the lead rope than that, right? And and calling those things out. And just, again, over-communication, packaging and repackaging ideas to to get something to stick, something that's 
eventually you're going to hit on a language pattern that's going to resonate with somebody that they will understand. You can't just bark technical orders. That's why a lot of us as trainers, we get good at using analogies and things in our explanations. And sometimes we get a little long-winded, admittedly, but that's the reason why we do it is try to make these things relatable and have a why behind them. Now, um, Jennifer asked us a, another good question here about just different good and, and bad lessons that we've learned from, from running a horse business. And one of the things that I touched on initially when we launched, and I did an entire blog post about it, and um, reading back there, again, with the repetition, <laughs> with the over-repetition, but I wanted to bring it up again here, and it kind of plays to what we just talked about, where you've got to develop a little bit of empathy and be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. A lot of what we do is Yes, we have a program and we want to bring the people we work with up to a more competent level, but we also understand that, you know, the, they're going to apply that in their own particular style. And they're, so, you know, we're, we're going to give them what's going to resonate with them, what's going to solve the problems that are in front of them. We're going to give them what they want, not what we think they ought to want. And we're not going to force it on them. You know, if we wanted to do that, we would just become politicians. We want to find out what is important to them. And along with that, and the, the more experience you have with this, the more you kind of recognize that there's really four types of horse owners uh, or riders that you're going to work with as a professional trainer and a clinician. And you need to learn how to recognize them and work with each type of person because a lot of what I see is trainers again either just rambling technical data like automatons or just giving the wrong person the wrong uh, the wrong package or yeah the wrong treatment exactly like you know for example um, my first uh, of the four types of horse owners the first example would be what I call affluent horsemen that is people that have enough disposable income that they really make decisions primarily on emotion. There's other factors at play, but to use an, a relatable example, an affluent person, when they buy a car, like a Ferrari, for example, they don't buy a Ferrari based on the gas mileage or the engine specs. They, they couldn't care less about any of that. They buy a Ferrari based on how it makes them feel to own a Ferrari. See what I'm saying? So the way to make that kind of person happy is to give them exactly what they want and not beat around the bush. They don't want to hear about the details. Like, you know, I've, I've seen, uh, especially younger trainers, giving an affluent person a sales pitch talking about how much money you're going to save them. Why would you do that? That's just a lack of awareness of what this person is really after and what they really want. They don't care about the money. To them, they want a good experience with you. And so... The second type of person is kind of the opposite. That would be someone who's very informed. And that's people people that like information. They've got a, they want to have a lot of technical knowledge. You can speak to them on a direct technical level when it comes to training because they have a passion for the details. They've done their homework behind the scenes. They've done the research. Yes. They've watched countless DVDs. They've studied everything. Like they're a student of the horse. And they want to learn and replicate all these things. And you make an informed person happy by giving them just a smorgasbord of information, right? You're not going to withhold anything. Like almost, almost to the point of overloading. Exactly. Like literally give them everything. But again, the, the 
the more affluent person who's not interested in that, you're just going to bore them to death, right? So Cause, just because they don't want to be on that ground level of the nitty gritty training details and specifics, they want you know the shiny, flashy end product. Yeah, and that just like you have to be able to adapt with what kind of horse you're working with, depending on uh, disposition and energy level. Same thing with the people that you're training, and. Uh, the third, third, I guess, type of horseman that you're going to work with are what I would call the thrifty horsemen, right? And the main thing thereafter, they, they love horses, and these other things are a factor as well. The emotion, they want the training information, but what's really, really important to them is that they get a good deal because they value their time and money above pretty much everything else when it comes to horses. And so, you know, they, they, the first question on their mind is going to be how much is something going to cost, right? And you're going to make those people happy by giving them a good deal and over-delivering on the results. So, um, and then the last person is <laughs> the, what I would call the difficult horseman, right? And th these are the people that are always going to be negative. And they, we all know people like this, okay? They just have a skill for unloading a lot of their problems onto the people around them. And you're not gonna be able to figure out what they want because they don't even know what they want, right? And it's rare, but I have had people like that. I've had people, and it, it's it's amazing, but you know, I've had people invest a lot of money with me and they ended up really being this kind of person. They kind of slipped through the cracks a little bit. And it happens, every once in a while, you're gonna meet somebody like that. And you just get more experienced about spotting that early, right? Right. Yeah. I can think of one specific example. I was selling a horse and this horse was, was a great horse. It had a bunch of riding. Uh, it was very well trained, had some handle on it, but it wasn't a kid's horse. It was just naturally more sensitive, a little bit more feely and a little bit more high maintenance. You know, it, it just wasn't a kid's pony. Great horse though. Yeah. So this woman contacted me and she had some young children, but this was primarily going to be a horse for her. You know, she wanted to go and take it to some shows and have some fun. And she loved how sensitive he was and a little bit on the athletic side of the spectrum. She came out and rode him, loved him. Okay. So she buys the horse and takes it home. Well, she, she kind of misrepresented what she wanted, or maybe she didn't even know what she wanted, you know, and she gets it home. And I, I hear from her a little bit later that, you know, it's, it's just not a kid's pony and it's not getting along with her kids and this, that, and the other thing. And, and she kind of goes back on what she said before. And that I would kind of classify as a difficult horse owner. One, right. one that doesn't know what they want and kind of makes your life a little bit miserable because you're there pulling your hair out thinking, you know, you sold her a horse that was good for her needs when, oh, at the, at the drop of a hat, now she wants something else. Right, right. On one hand, wants a sensitive horse that's a little bit more higher energy level for herself, but then... I, but I then need... is upset when, you know, her kids can't go get it and, you know, play around with it by themselves. Yep, and have them all riding on, on him bareback at the same time and things like that. And again, it just comes down to the importance of communication. And honestly, you know, that's probably the one of the biggest lessons that we've learned and continue to learn because that's a daily struggle for us. And we don't always succeed at it. But I don't think there's a bigger variable of success as a horseman then your ability to package information in a way that's understandable you you look at the people that have been fantastically successful in the horse industry one of the key elements to all of them is they are good communicators and they also go out of their way 
to maintain the necessary human relationships that will give you opportunities to do lessons, get opportunities to get horses in training, and just open up new possibilities for you. And the fact is, and again, this is something that one of our mentors constantly drew attention to, and it's so true, is that most strictly horse trainers, especially performance horse trainers, are bad communicators. In fact, probably the, the most talented trainers are always the most abysmal at communication skills. And so it goes back to the old saying about talented people being the worst teachers. And you'd be amazed at how little money a lot of the top trainers right now are, are actually making. Because, you know, at best, if you have a business model based solely on training fees, it's going to be a break-even enterprise at best. And a lot of trainers I know that, are, that train uh, horses and compete, they actually, they can only make a profit if they win, right? And a lot of them actually figure in a certain amount of earnings into their budget every year. Without that success, they would be broke. Um, and that's the only way that they can really make money is that or commissions on horses that sell. And so you look at the guys who were able to transcend that and make money through their communication skills. And that is where, you know, you'll kind of go to the next level at that point. And that's, again, something we struggle to, to hit the mark on as well. Um, so the fact is, though, at the end of the day, if you're looking at this from a professional perspective, you could work yourself into a frazzled skeleton in the arena and have a barn with 40 horses in training and you ride all of them every day. And you'll still never get ahead if you do not communicate well. Um, and just some more lessons as far as business goes about time management. Again, something that that's probably my weakest area personally is just time management. And, and really, time is our most valuable asset in this business. That's effectively what we're doing is selling time. We're trying to, to either whether it's through the training or lessons, we're trying to help people speed up the process of improvement and progress with their horses. And so we have to also have respect for our time as well, and it cuts both ways. And just the fact that, you know, I won't go into this too much, but I've talked to multiple professionals. Some were my mentors formerly before I went out on my own. Others are just ones that I've met. And just the, the, the horse industry today is changing on a lot of levels. You know, the kind of the, the generation that made like the Monty Roberts and John Lyons and Pat Pirelli's famous in the 90s and early 2000s, that, that is going away. Uh, and, you know, a lot of those guys are getting older and have retired or are retiring soon. And I know a lot of them and have talked to several and they're glad to be retiring at this point because that that is kind of going away. That style of, of operation is going away. There's there's becoming less appeal there. Right. But you know, and so the kind of the younger horse owners right now are more specialized. They want to do actual disciplines. They want to go compete in things with their horses. Even if it's something like competitive trail or, you know, if at the AQHA level, if they're doing ranch riding, things like that, or stock horse of Texas, things that are a little more accessible, but they want to get out there and do things. I I'd say the there's less of them, but they're more active. And another problem that some of the top trainers out there have brought up to us, and I think we mentioned this on the podcast before, is the skill gap that's developed over the past decade or so between probably the top trainers out there, especially in like the, the reigning discipline and other performance horse disciplines, and their assistants below them, and how there's not enough cross communication. And there's a lot of young guys out there that uh, you know, when the when the old guard retires, 
the, there's genuine worry in some circles among the top horsemen that there's not going to be enough well-trained young horsemen to take over, to, to take up that, that banner. Um, and just as well, you know, society, the attitudes about animal welfare has changed significantly. But ultimately, the bottom line is this. I, I've heard this from multiple people that would be in a position to know. And, you know, they're very in tune with the data, what's going on in the industry, etc. And I've been hearing this for years, and I really do think it's true, is that the professional horsemen of the near future cannot just train reining horses or just teach lessons and just be a clinician. They'll, they'll need to have both skill sets intertwined in a way that we have not seen yet. So I, I think, you know, in the future, and this is something we're trying to get to, and I think we'll see this trend developing, is there's going to be a lot of a, a kind of a, an opening of communication and access to performance horse circles for people on a level that hasn't been seen. The industry is very slow technology-wise to catch up, probably about 10 years behind the rest of society. <laughs> That's typically how we do things in the horse business. Um, but I think we will actually catch up. So anyway, going into the training. So we've, we've been getting a few live chat questions here and uh, I just wanted to go through that. So Eric says, I've well, let's start with the top here with Libby. Um, my question is, how can we be better communicators with our trainers? When are we a bother? <laughs> when is it okay to ask? How do we hold our trainers accountable? And I, I can only speak for myself and, and for our business here, but I would say it's not a bother. I, I would say this though, I would say this, a lot of horse owners that I work with, and, and this came up uh, recently with a lady that I did a lesson with in Pennsylvania, where really a lot of people, they need to, to be a little bit more anti-fragile, right? I, Luke and I have talked about this before. It's like a lot of people get really angsty or frustrated with the training process itself. They understand on an intellectual level that yes, the horse is going to struggle and you know horses don't learn things overnight and blah, 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 and we're going to have to work through some resistance, but then you actually get out there in the arena and start doing it. And it can be frustrating to, and you kind of lose the forest for the trees, right? And you get bogged down in, in, and even just a couple of days of attempting a new exercise and somebody's getting super frustrated. I would say just a little bit of patience and resilience and just not being so hard on yourself goes a long way. Um, <clears throat> but not overreacting to the fact that the and just not, yeah, that's really what I'm trying to say. Not overreacting to the fact that the horse is struggling. You know, if you find yourself in a persistent hole where, you know, it's been three or four days or more of consistent practice, not every other day, but you've been working on something for three, four days in a row, and it's either not getting any better whatsoever, or it's in fact getting actively worse. That is a genuine red flag versus well, we're making progress, but not at the rate I would like, right? And that's where I guess when it comes down in, in terms of the, the way we look at things, people that we work with or that we help answer questions for, we want to hear the details. We don't want vagaries. And so in fact, if you're gonna reach out to us, um, at least from my experience, I'm willing to answer any kind of question. 
but it right. helps to get details. Yes, right? and and we like questions because that shows that you're invested and you're interested. You know, we we want we want to work with someone who's excited to work with us and actually wants to learn and be involved in the process. So questions definitely are a good thing and a positive thing in yes. our life. Yes, um, <laughs> I would say there are stupid questions, like not stupid in terms of I'm dismissing the problem that's happening with your horse but just in the way that we're approaching it and the information being shared. Like I remember this one lady that I worked with, I actually did a lesson with her um, and it went pretty well, right? But she texted me later, like a few days later, and she's just like, horse won't lead. Like that was literally the text, three words. And I'm like, okay, so exactly what are we doing here? You know, like, where won't it lead? What are you trying to do with it? What did you try? What were you doing when it wouldn't lead? Like, give us some sort of context, you know, give us something to actually work with, you know, paint us a picture here. Right. And you can literally do that by, if you can bribe someone or however you got to do it into filming you, that has been huge, right? Yes. Because, and that's that, that lady that ended up being the solution is that I, I obviously can't tell from a three-word text what is going on. So, but a video of her, I can see how she's interacting with this horse and then call out something that, you know, like I, I think we talked about this in an earlier podcast. A lot of times it boils down to just the person isn't quite aware of something that the horse is doing. So, you know, some pushiness that they're getting away with, something that's going on that the human is not calling out and addressing in that moment, putting a little more pressure on that horse, etc. And so a, a video gives me the ability to instantly see that. And so anytime we get video from somebody in addition to a question so that we've got the full context, that is extremely valuable. And right, because look at it from like our perspective. We're going to put together like a comprehensive, detailed, thorough answer for you. And so we kind of need a detailed, thorough question. Otherwise, we can't give you anything of value in return. It has to go both ways. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, did you want to talk about um, how to hold your trainers accountable? <laughs> my, my, my thought on that is if you have to hold your trainer accountable, Maybe you shouldn't be cutting him a check. Well, really, it comes down to information and communication in my book. Yeah. I, I think, and, and I actually, Luke and I recorded a rant on this a while back, and we scrapped it because there was just too many swear words in there. But the main, the main point of it was that, you know, we worked with a lady. We actually did a private lesson with her that she was struggling with the turnaround, and this particular trainer that had been given her lessons was literally just telling her to jog circles and just, you know, turn the horse and take him into it. And if he wouldn't, if he wasn't turning around clean or he was just swashbuckling around, you know, just completely discombobulated, just jog him forward and around again, take him into it again. You know, just kind of threw her a little bit of chicken feed instead of really getting down to the, to the, to the technical exercise level tips that she needed, which was, okay, this thing is... He's not leaving the turn technically, but you can just see in his attitude and the way he's setting himself up for it that every fiber of his being is straining and wishing he was leaving that turn, right? And he's not paying attention. We, we can't even get that first step initiated correctly. His rib cage is all bowed out. And once she got the, the tools and the information to correct those things, just sharing that information, like just, you know, if you're consistently getting stonewalled by somebody as well, just just figure it out. Yeah, right? Just go long trot. Right. Go long trot. Go jog some circles. Like if it's that if it's that kind of stuff, like 
I guess that's really the way you hold somebody accountable is you ask probing questions. And the best question you can ask a horse trainer is why, mm -hmm. why this, why that, you know? And if they can't give you a satisfying answer, they don't know their stuff, that's a big red flag. Absolutely. Right? But you know, if, if you're putting pressure on that person, you're asking probing questions and you're getting a response and it's lining up and resonating with what you can feel in the, in the way that that horse is behaving, um, then great. I, I will say this though, like there's a level of that there, there needs to be some connection there, but, and some accountability. Um, uh, but there also needs to be like a good faith effort to just try something that, that will sometimes seem counterintuitive. Right. So anyway, again, pretty much any, any issues that I get on the receiving end of like people coming to me saying, well, my trainer, this, that, and the other, you know, a lot of it just comes down to a lack of communication mm -hmm. and just kind of stonewalling somebody and not really diving deep into the tools that they actually need. Um, now, Caitlin Hurst in the in the chat in our podcast here, um, hey Caitlin, she asked, uh, I've got a horse that is very defensive and experiences PTSD-like symptoms under saddle. So what exercise do you recommend to ease anxiety and help with relaxation? Well, I guess and without telling you to go listen to our podcast, we did an episode on like super sensitive, highly overreactive horses. We touched on that again in our most recent episode that we did. A lot of it comes down to, and, and when, when you say like, you know, PTSD-like symptoms or, or just overreaction, a lot of that comes from just a horse that is just not really used to being handled, being manipulated, being accepting of pressure, right? And so a lot of, in fact, the, the title of our most recent podcast was Teaching a Horse to be Trained On. And that probably more so than the actual exercises themselves has been a strong focus of ours from day one because that's an element that a lot of people don't consider it it seems pretty self-explanatory but when you dig into it you know a lot of people are very focused on exercises counterbending whether it's turnaround stopping etc they're just not spending enough consistent time in the arena doing a lot of suppling and on top of that they're not really after true softness like the the, the further along you get with a horse especially a show horse the more important it's going to be to be releasing to and rewarding any instance that horse truly relaxes, not just softens to the pressure, not just moves off your leg, not just does the maneuver, but does it with the correct attitude and does it with a relaxed feel. And a lot of people get in a bad habit of just kind of, you know, checking things off their list, like a little pre-flight check style ride where oh, I'll go turn him around a couple of times and that oh, wasn't bad. I'll go do this thing over here. And you just kind of dabble in things and not really stay in there long enough and challenge the horse, not only to accept what's going on, but give them a chance to relax about it. Right? And there are some horses that when you go to train them, like I find myself having to check me. Like there are some horses that you can't be in a hurry to train on because then otherwise I fall into that trap of check, 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 counterbend, bend, stop, turn around. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so a horse like that, that is a lot more sensitive, reactive, or, you know, PTSD, like, you know, I can't go in with as firm in it as an agenda and I have to take my time a little bit more. I still, you know, it doesn't mean I'm spending eight hours with this horse or a yeah. ridiculous amount of time, but mentally I'm slowing down and allowing the time that that horse needs to grasp something. Right. 
I, I wish I could articulate this better, but thinking back to that super sensitive, overreactive cow horse filly of mine, and I can remember back, well, you saw me when I was initially doing uh, like post and circle and bending transitions with mm -hmm. her out in the arena. It was one of the first few times I'd tried that exercise in the big arena, you know, and I put her on a loose rein and she goes to blast off. And then as soon as I take a hold of her to bend her around or, or do anything, and it's, you know, head up in the air, she's overreactive, she's jittery, she's jumping off my leg, she's nervous about that leg pressure, etc. And on some level, like it wasn't to the point, <clears throat> excuse me, it wasn't, it wasn't to the point where I couldn't ride through it and stay with her and just wait on her to relax and accept what was going on. You know, I didn't, so there's a, there's a, there's a balance there. I didn't absolutely pour the coals to her and just completely drive her crazy, but I exposed her to enough pressure that was making her uncomfortable in that. And I would say any kind of bending transitions, any kind of little serpentines, especially little serpentines of the jog, nice tight little circles, a little bending with vertical to where you're kind of capturing them a little bit with your hands and legs, establishing some shape and waiting for them to truly soften and truly give at the withers, not just tuck their chin in there. And, and transitions exercises, I mean, I cannot stress that enough. Until they just get buttery smooth. I, exactly. Until they're just like, it doesn't matter where they're at in the arena, they're just expecting to be picked up on. Mm -hmm. They're expecting you to take a hold of their face. They're expecting you and accepting of you putting that leg on. And the, the sad part of that answer is, or I guess the unfortunate part, is that's a ton of repetition though. Like I spent several weeks with Kitty, that cow horse filly, just doing bending transitions and post and circle. And then when she finally got relaxed enough to where it wasn't a total freak out when I took a hold of her face and went to go do that downward transition, then we could do things like a little bit of shoulder in, shoulder out, again, putting her in a bind, creating a shape that's a bit counterintuitive, having her stay in there, but the whole time being really methodical with it but also pushing the envelope and making her uncomfortable. I think that's probably the biggest trap people fall into that have an overreactive horse is they allow the horse's overreactivity to like put a pause on them asking for more and, and actually putting that horse, putting pressure on that horse, right? And so then it's like a mindless habit that the horse develops where they're not really scared. They're not really rattled when you pick up on them. It's just become like an instinctive like second nature reflex that, you know, when Caitlin picks up on my face, I'm going to, uh, you know, get bracy and jittery up there uh, before I submit to her hands. Right. And so that's probably the main thing I see with people is, and I'm always yelling at people in lessons, uh, going back to the automaton trainer, like, you know, take them deeper in the face. Like, don't be like, yes, establish a starting point, but that's exactly what it is, a starting point. Like every day I'm chipping away, whether it's my bending transitions, my serpentines, my shoulder in, shoulder out, or my counter bending, I'm taking that horse's face into a little bit more of a bind, having a little bit more shape and just gradually like, yeah, it's going to make the horse uncomfortable. But again, teaching that horse to be trained on especially when they're hypersensitive and reactive. It just needs to become like a full spectrum goal, no matter what exercise you're doing. And so there was some days like with Kitty and even now, if there's a particular exercise we come out with, uh, especially if it's a transition exercise at the lope, bending transitions, or you know, I'll do counter bending transitions now with her out of the lope. I'll do counter cantering. Like when I started doing counter cantering with her, 
she was totally rattled. That was something completely new. It was super uncomfortable for her. But again, staying in it until I get her, you know, and it took the, like the first couple of sessions I did that. Did it take a while? Absolutely. That was pretty much all we got done that entire ride is just counter canter her with a little bit of shape just as a starting point. And when she finally relaxed their retreat, you know, bring her back down the walk, etc. And that's just the philosophy you have to have with anything is you, you push the envelope there and make that horse uncomfortable, but you stay in that exercise long enough until that horse genuinely commits to being relaxed. At that uncomfortable level. You're exactly. Kind of feeling it out, feeling it out, feeling it out. Get to that uncomfortable level now and have some feel. You don't keep going through the roof at that point. You stay right there where that's uncomfortable until that gets comfortable. And then every day you can push that envelope a little further, a little further. Yep. We see that a lot with older horses. Like I had a, a gal that actually sent me a video on lead changes and her mare was getting super bracy and just really wigging out, like anticipating, but then also overreacting and jumping off of her legs awkwardly and getting super bracy in the bridle. Like that horse needs a couple weeks where she goes back to counterbending and, and, and counter cantering, just getting that horse relaxed again with just being taken a hold of and shaped and maneuvered and getting off of her leg before she comes back. The answer there is not to keep drilling on the lead changes. Go back to a little bit of a simpler exercise to where you're putting that horse in binds that are making them uncomfortable, but it's not, like you pointed out, totally blowing their motor, mm -hmm. right? And, and work your way from there. But like I said with Kitty, there was a lot of days where it was pretty much just counterbending counter and countercantering is all we really accomplished before she got out of air to where I couldn't really work on anything else. Right. But and there's, when they're, when they're at that level of frazzledness, leaving it and going to do something else would be counterproductive on, on several fronts. You know, you didn't fix what she was frazzled about and you probably just opened up another can of worms with something else. You know, there's, there's no sense in feeling like that ride is a failure because that's all you got to. That was highest priority. Exactly. And yeah, back to, I swear, this is the last time I repeat myself, back to that checklist style of ride where you're just kind of, you're, you're very touch and go on each little maneuver or exercise you want to work in. Changing that formula and showing that horse that, hey, I'm going to stay in this one exercise until you really soften and, and not just soften, but you're relaxed about it, right? And you're that's the only behavior you're going to reward. That's the only way out of that bind. It's really a mental habit you're creating, but the exercises that make it easier are anything where you're suppling, you're shaping, whether that's shaping, you know, and just doing regular bending or bending with vertical or you're counter bending at the walk and the jog, little serpentines at the jog, just taking that horse in and out of binds and just getting them handled and pliable and relaxed. Anything you can do along those lines is going to be huge yes. for that Any, kind of a horse. Anything that's taking a hold of them or handling them. Yep. Um, Eric uh, in the chat also asks, uh, I have a, a problem when I go to supple my horse up vertically, he tends to cave his shoulders to the inside. Would I pick his shoulders up with the reins or use my leg? Well, in that case, preferably, it depends on the context, but a lot of leg pressure in my book. You can use the outside rein a little bit to help you, um, you know, and you can even use some inside rein depending on what exactly he's doing. You know, especially if he's really leaning down maybe on your on your inside rein or inside hand. Some horses will do that and 
bumping there a little bit vertically on that rein to stand him up. But again, I, I prefer not to really get in a horse's face. And one, th one thing that um, I've kind of been putting into practice over the last couple of years is getting used to doing more riding with my feet. I used to, as a rider, just be used to getting everything done with my hands. And my first instinct, based on what was happening in the horse's body, was to go fix it up front with my hands. And another thing that I've learned is that it's, it's like I'm all now about maintain, being able to maintain contact with the horse's face and having, upset, having them accept it. And bumping or jerking on the reins for me is, is kind of my second or third option down the line. Like if they're really in a bad habit of those types of things, you know, shaping them to the inside there, maybe let's say you're jogging a little circle to the right, shaping them up, then counterbending them off of that you know, little counter bending transitions that way, or just, you know, a lot of two tracking as well. Like that's not just with the shoulder, any, any way that the horse is leaning, especially when it gets rooted out in a transitions exercise. If I'm going straight across the arena, I want to break them down into the jog. And I feel that that rib cage or that shoulder dump over to the inside. Well, maybe I'll counter bend you up off of that and take you the opposite way. I'll have you shaped that way, but we're going to track the opposite, you know, maybe shaped right but track left on a, on a tight little circle. And a lot of times, especially if it's a bad habit, and I've seen this used and done it myself uh, and as a correction sometimes, depending on <clears throat> where you're at in the arena, like using counter bending tight, little tight, and I'm talking tiny circles at the jog because it's an intensive bind. It's a tight circle. It's physically hard for that horse to maintain a jog and counterbend a tight circle like that. At using that as a reprimand for horses that are like, like perfect, like you can just see them consciously dumping everything over, like say to the right, you counterbend them up off of that to the left and take them on a tight little circle in there. Like there's, there's a number of things that you can do, but I would, I would obviously use leg pressure as my first go-to. And your hands are just kind of support or as needed. Right. Is that correct? But, you know, if, if this is a habit, this horse would probably benefit from a lot of transitions exercises and mm -hmm. just a little bit more work on standing that shoulder up. So I, I hope that was helpful. It's, it's not a ton of context here. I know there's limits on, the, on how, how long of a question you can have. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, oh, he asked another question here. Hey, guys, I've got a few questions when moving on from the... The bend and draw to more vertical suppling, are you keeping your outside leg on the horse the whole time? Uh, you're going on a small circle until he softens or cueing it all with your reins to go left or right when softening the horse vertically? And are you bringing the reins over their neck at all? Uh, in the bend and draw exercise, basically what he's talking about here is bending with vertical. Often we'll do it as a, at the jog as a transition exercise. And when you first introduce this, you are drawing a lot on the outside rein. As oftentimes, like I, like I said, you know, you can use that outside rein to kind of help keep the horse's shoulders stood up a little bit, maintain contact on their face. A lot of times, if you're say you're you're doing bending with vertical to the left, for example, and you've got that horse picked up and shaped with his nose tip left. A lot of times, younger horses especially, they'll be trying to to bulge everything off the circle and leak right. So you can kind of use, you take a little bit more bend with your inside rein, you're using outside leg and either, you know, 
I'm I'm a big fan of especially if that horse is is blatantly bulging against my leg just kind of either pressing or just like lightly bumping with rhythm mm -hmm. not wailing on them you know unless obviously they just blatantly run through me but just bum 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 just with rhythm having a little bit having a little energy in my feet right so a little bit of energy in my feet get that horse moved over I'm not just gonna press and hold and encourage him to lean on it but uh, getting getting back to the question here so are you keeping your outside leg on the horse the whole time? Well, in the beginning you will be because you kind of need to help him establish and find the circle. But your ultimate goal is that you've done enough repetition with that to where he's a little bit self-propelled. So I'm, you know, like let's say he's kind of bulging his ribcage out a little bit. It might be with my leg either press or bum, 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 bump with light rhythm and then release. But in doing so, he's probably going to start dipping in a little bit. So I'll use some inside leg. And it's like the analogy I've heard in terms of how you're using your legs and hands in the teaching stage before the horse really understands the circle and will maintain it like he's on autopilot is like when you're in those circles, you use, you're using your hands and legs like a lathe, you know, that woodworking tool to where you can make little, uh, I don't know, braille railings or whatever, whatever they do with it. I, I'm not a carpenter, but you get my point. It's like you're sanding and rounding that piece of lumber because there's there's pits in it, there's knots, there's one side that's uneven, and the other is smoother, whatever. So you are using a lot of just micro adjustments of your hands and legs to help kind of maintain that circle in the beginning. But over time, you want to get to where you're doing less and less of that and to where you're primarily using leg pressure. And you're really, really your hands are just kind of a placeholder establishing shape, right? So anyway, um, let's see here. Did we miss anybody? Well, you're telling me we need to pack up here. We're getting kicked out. Yes. <laughs> Literally. Of the, uh, of the library, the conference room that we're in. Um, but anyway, so I hope that was somewhat helpful. I know I didn't go into a, a ton of detail on that one. But, but yes, the, the goal is getting that horse self-propelled using less and less rein pressure all the time and, and more and more leg. And your hands are just kind of establishing a little bit of shape. Um, in the bend and draw exercise specifically, yes, over time you transition to drawing that outside rein across the neck just a little bit. Especially if you feel that shoulder bulging out there. You can use that rein to kind of help block the shoulder a little bit, but again, that's a micro adjustment that you made in the moment in response to where that horse's body was leaning or bulging. Anyway, guys, thank you for tuning into this live broadcast. The video is going to be saved on our Facebook page, and we're going to upload the audio in the podcast feed. We're out of time here. We went from 2.30 to 4, mm -hmm. and we had some great questions from you guys. The ones that we did get to in the podcast, we'll be reaching out to you guys directly through messenger or email to get you some free Lundell Performance gear. Thank you again for tuning in, and we hope to do this again soon.